Hey, you can go ahead and turn to Ruth chapter 3. So I always try to focus on finding a really catchy intro to get started. Like, this is just the way I write my, like, I can't really write it until I come up with my intro. So here's my intro this morning. You ready? We have a lot to get to, so let's get going. Okay. <laughs> We're going to do two whole chapters of the book of Ruth. You like that? <laughs> like, just get into it? All right, so... I said last week that we were going to start by talking about this idea of a kinsman redeemer. And if you haven't been here, we've been working through the whole book of Ruth in three weeks. It's four chapters in three weeks, which means one week you're going to get stuck doing two. And that's this morning. So I'm going to talk really, really, really fast. Hopefully I will talk really, really, really sensibly and you'll be able to keep up with me though. So, so where we started, chapter one is really all about building this sense of despair, this sense of emptiness, this sense of brokenness, right? Naomi and Ruth lose everything. They lose, for Naomi, she loses her husband and her sons. For, for Ruth, she loses her husband. For Ruth, she loses her home and she travels back with Naomi. And, and Naomi just feels broken and empty and bitter, right? Has absolutely nothing. Ruth, on the other hand, has just as much nothing, and yet she has decided, I'm going to commit myself, I'm going to commit my life to taking care of Naomi because she has no one. So, so even in her bitterness and, and missing out on the fact that Ruth is there caring for her, Naomi has something. She has someone. She has someone who is committed to be there to care for her. And we're just given this small glimmer of hope at the end of the chapter that, that something good is coming. There isn't, there isn't this forever famine and they're never going to be fed ever again and, and chapter two as we talked last week kind of involves this interaction between R ruth and boaz who in in our case is kind of the hero of this story in this in the context of the book and and, and ruth meets boaz and, and he hears who who she is she's she's gone out to serve her mother she's gone out to work in a field to try to to get as much food as she can so that they can continue to eat and Boaz sees her working, and he's impressed not just not by, by, oh, hey, look, there's a girl. She looks nice. That's not what catches his eye, right? He sees her, and he says, she's working hard to serve somebody, and her character speaks to Boaz. He's overwhelmed by the sense of generosity in her, and he says, I'm going to be generous to her. I'm going to care for her and her mother-in-law. And he makes it as easy as he can for her to gather as much food as possible. And what we talked about last week was that by the end of the barley harvest, at the rate that she was bleeding, she would, have, she would have been able to gather enough food for the two women to eat for the whole year. Right? So, so he, has, he has solved their hunger problem through his generosity. And really the focus hasn't been on the actions taken by all these characters, but more the character of them. Like, like, like Boaz keeps being described as a worthy man. He had a good reputation. There was, there was nothing in him that, that we have been shown to think, this guy's not a good guy. Everything he's doing, he's doing out of a heart to serve Ruth. He's not trying to get something for himself. He's just like, I want to serve and make sure that you and your mother-in-law Naomi are taken care of. And Ruth is, has all this time been presented as an honorable woman, somebody who, who isn't, isn't bound to stay with Naomi. She was given her release. Naomi said, you can go home and just go back and find a new husband and have a life. You don't have to, you don't have to travel back with me. Because remember, Naomi was so bitter about God that, that she was thinking, I'm cursed by God. You don't want to be around me. You're just going to get caught up in that same curse. But all we've seen about Ruth is that she continues to commit to Naomi 
for the long term. She's like, I am with you. I'm not leaving. We're going we're gonna to see this thing through. And she continues to serve. And, and we've really heightened on their character. We've, we've focused on the, the high standing character that both of these people have. And what we're slowly starting to see is they are representative of the character of God. And, and, and hopefully by the end of our time today, we're going to shift from focusing just on the character of these two individuals to seeing how they represent the character of God. Because, because so much of what we're seeing is, is these, these selfless acts of generosity, these desires to serve others at a cost to oneself. And, and what that's resulting in is instead of where we started with brokenness and emptiness, we're going to end up with wholeness. And that's been, that's been our whole focus through this whole book is that, is that what is empty gets made whole. Like we don't, we don't make ourselves whole. We don't make ourselves complete. Somebody intervenes in our life and takes us from being empty and broken to making us whole, complete, satisfied. And we're going to see how that plays out perfectly in the lives of Ruth and Boaz today. Because Boaz, as we, as we heard at the end of chapter 2, is one of the kinsmen redeemers in the clan that Ruth's husband and Ruth's father were from. And I said last week, we're going to talk about that early on. And so that's what we're going to do. So I'm just going to read you a couple of notes. And I'm taking these right out of the commentary that I've been studying. Because, well, this guy says it way better than I could. And I wanted to make sure that we said this clearly. So the whole idea, and I told you last week, the word for this was goel. That is the term that, is, that they're using here when they're describing a kinsman redeemer. And the point of a goel, the point of a kinsman redeemer was somebody who would see to it that the clan was made whole, right? That's been our focus, that he would make whole the broken and empty family of Ruth. So, and that would take place by either taking care of the widow who was left over, maybe maybe marrying his wife so that she is cared for, maybe taking care of um, an older mother-in-law in this sense. Like, because what we talked about, when Naomi lost everything, she lost her husband who was caring for her and her sons who would have cared for her into her old age. And the idea is that there's somebody who can step into the lives of the people in, the, in their family and help care for people even into their old age so that they don't have to worry about what they're going to eat. They don't have to worry about where they're going to live, how they're going to be provided for. So he would redeem their property. He would redeem, like if there, if there was a plot of land that they owned that was no longer going to be able to be worked, he would, he would take that and he would work that so that he could provide food for them. He would, he would take care of, of impoverished clan relatives. It, like if, if, they, if they had no money, if they had no way of buying food, he would take care of meet those needs. You would also receive, be receiving the inheritance that was due anyone in that family. So, so he says there is somewhere for this inheritance to go so that the legacy that this person left for his family might be carried on. But ultimately, the point of having a goel was to provide an opportunity for the clan to be made whole. And we kind of looked at this last week. I kind of compared this to the church. Like, like we want, as the church, to take care of our own. We want to be here to fight for one another. And I think that's the same kind of idea that the goel was looking for. The kinsman redeemer was there to take somebody who's in a broken and empty state, and instead of allowing them to get lost in bitterness, to step in and say... I am going to take care of you. I'm going to see you through this difficult situation. And what we learned last week was that Naomi said, Hey, Ruth, this guy that you've met, this guy who has already started to provide food for us, he is one of our redeemers. 
And what we're going to find out today is that Naomi, during the time that she learned about who this guy was, developed a plan for what they should do going forward to kind of work out this relationship the best. So if you've already turned to Ruth chapter 3, go ahead and look there. And we're going to get started. We're just going to read the very first few verses here. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. We'll talk about that whole uncovering his feet thing in a second, because I'm still trying to figure out what that is. And hopefully, hopefully the Holy Spirit is going to give me some divine inspiration so that I can really give you some sort of truth on that. Um, so what I think is first interesting is that Naomi finally takes a little initiative. Right? This whole book, she's been sitting around sulking, complaining that God doesn't like her and is out to get her. Even, even while Ruth spent months out working in the field to provide food for them, she's just sat there. Right? We kind of we we described her as sitting there on the couch in her sweatpants crying all the time. Right? That's, that's kind of the state that Naomi's been in. She's not been helpful. She's not been offering any support. She's not been offering any thanks. And so finally, Naomi's going to take a little initiative, and she's going she's to offer something. She says, um, I want, why wouldn't I seek rest for you? That idea for seek rest isn't like make it to where you don't have to work, but like find the comfort and safety that is found in marriage at that time. Why wouldn't I want you to go find somebody? Why wouldn't I help you find somebody who can care for you for the rest of your life so that you're not, you're not left with this responsibility all on your own? It's like all of a sudden she's realizing all of the sacrifice that Ruth is making for her, has made for her. And it's finally starting to make sense to her. Oh, wait, why shouldn't I be trying to help you figure out a way to set yourself up for the rest of your life so that you're not sitting here worried and starving just like, just like I am? Doesn't it make sense that I would help you find somebody? It, it's almost, it, and it's almost like she's saying, hey, Ruth, it's time for you to put yourself back out there. Right? It's time to get past this, all I do is work to, say, to protect my mother-in-law. It's time for you to go back out there and start thinking about your future. It's time for you to focus more on yourself, to take care of yourself. And what's interesting is she's not really talking about her fa own family's legacy here. Like she could have said, we've got to figure out a way to restore my husband's legacy. She's saying, Ruth, we've got to figure out a way to make sure that you're taken care of. So she really has shifted her focus from herself, which is where she started in chapter 1. She's completely locked down herself and how miserable she is. And she's finally starting to say, let's see what we can do to take care of you, to, to help you. And so she says, he's going to be down at the threshing floor winnowing. Who knows what winnowing is? Anybody? You can raise your hand if you know. Daniel, you don't know? No winnowing? Okay, so winnowing is the act. And it's interesting that she says... Uh, it'll be in the evening, and we'll talk about that just here in just a second. Um, it's the act after you've harvested barley where you try to separate the grain from the rest of the leftover straw that you don't need anymore. So what you do is you'd go in the evening because there was a breeze that would come through as the sun was going down. And you take a pitchfork and you just throw it up in the air and the wind would catch it. 
and it'd blow away everything that doesn't matter and all the heavy grain would fall straight back down. Right? So that's what he's going to be doing. He's going to be out, in the, out at the threshing floor basically separating out the good bits of the harvest from the stuff that they don't need and letting the wind just kind of carry it away. I think it's interesting that it um, is Boaz doing this work, right? Because last week what we saw is that Boaz had staff, right? Boaz had his own guys who were out there um, doing the harvesting, taking care of his fields for him, and he just kind of came in to check on them. Right? He, said, he was basically coming in to say, how's the work going today, guys? And they respected him as their leader. They respected him as essentially their boss. But it's interesting, she says, he's going to be out doing this work. And I think that, again, is reflective of his character. Even though he has the ability to pay somebody to do this, he's going to be out doing his own work. He's going to be out um, taking care of his own crops. And, and naturally, that work's going to lead him to be hungry, right? Because if you work a long day, you end up hungry. And, and if you eat, you're happy. Right? Isn't that how it works? You work really hard. And I, think, and I think, aside from where we're going with this, I think that's a quick practical thing. God built us so that we would work hard, right? Be hungry, eat something at the end of a hard work day, and just be satisfied with what we've accomplished that day. And I think that's really what Boaz's state of mind is going to be. He's going to be satisfied that he's worked hard all day. He didn't just sit around and do nothing. Right? We're going to talk about a guy in just a few minutes who sits around doing nothing. But Boaz is going to be out working hard. And at the end of the day, he's going to be happy that he's had a good hard day's work. He's going to eat a meal and he's going to be ready to fall asleep because he's worked hard and he's tired. So Naomi tells Ruth, okay, we're going to look at this two ways. First, Naomi tells Ruth to make herself look presentable. Because we can imagine every time that Boaz has seen Ruth up to this point, She's in work clothes, and she's dirty, and she's been out in the field just, just working away. And that, that's all he has seen her as, is that girl who comes and works in the field. But now Naomi says, all right, let's do this. Take a bath. Put on some new clothes. Put on something so you smell good. There is practical application to be had there. My wife is smiling and not making eye contact with me. So, okay, real world, real world here. Okay, so Gap doesn't sell scent stuff anymore, but they used to sell this stuff called Dream, this, this thing, and, and she's always worn it, and I can always tell wherever I am in the house if she is wearing it because I have gotten used to smelling that smell. So when we heard that they weren't going to sell anymore, she bought like 20 bottles. Of, I mean, we have like, we have like, a, we have like the lifetime supply. All that to say, she's saying, do what you can so that, so that he's going to think of you. He's going to notice you differently than he has up to this point. And it works. That's, that's my whole testimony to telling that, that that's effective, right? This also has a second meaning. This is the same kind of action that David took David is going to take years later after he has an affair with Bathsheba and the son that they have after that affair dies. David is going to mourn the death of his son. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 20, tell me if these steps sound the same. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. And he went to his own house and when he, they had asked, when he had asked they set the food before him, and he ate. This is also Naomi telling Ruth, it's time to stop mourning your husband. 
It's time to move forward with your life. It's time to, to stop dwelling on the past. And, and this is probably good truth for Naomi as well, right? Who has been so focused on her own sadness. It's time for you to get up, get dressed, look good, and go talk to this guy. It's time to move forward. I, she's saying, don't feel tied just to the death. Of, don't let the death of what Naomi's saying is my son. Don't let that hold you back anymore. It's time for you to move forward. I think there is something more to be done here. So Ruth listens. Verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. Awesome. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Okay. This is the weirdest part of this whole book to me, right? Because we don't have, I don't think, a cultural parallel to go uncover his feet and lay down beside him. We don't, we don't have that. The first thing that I want us to make sure we don't think of this as, this isn't like Ruth coming on to him sexually, right? She's not like, she's not saying, hey... This isn't that sort of thing. You can't, you can't shake your head and laugh and not make eye contact with me like that or I'm going to get super distracted. Because this is going to get way more real before the end of the day. Um, this isn't that. This is her... The, the best that we can tell culturally is that this is basically her saying, would you be interested in marrying me? Like this is a cultural reference to, hey, I am an eligible woman... Who, who would say yes if you asked me to marry you. That's basically what this action is. It's not, it's not like her crossing any lines because, as we're going to see, the author of this book is so careful to preserve the character of both Ruth and Boaz. It's not going to show them doing anything that's inappropriate, crossing any lines, taking any steps that would tarnish their reputation. He's so carefully constructed this, this, this honor that they both hold so that... So that when we see them take these actions, we're again reminded, look at the character of these people. So it's kind of a cultural, non-verbal method of proposal. That's, that's, that's the best I got for you. I still don't know the full significance of it, but maybe it's like uncover his feet so that they'll get cold and he'll wake up and say, what are you doing here? I don't know. Because I, I don't know about you. My, I, I don't like it if my feet get uncovered. I get super paranoid if my feet are exposed. It's, it's terrifying to me. Like, that, that, it's, it's, a scary, it's a scary, scary thing. So, so he says, so he wakes up, right? He wakes up, he looks over, he's like, there's a girl there. There wasn't a girl there when I went to sleep. What's up with this? Who are you? And she says, I'm Ruth. She reminds him, I'm this person that you've seen all along. But then what does she describe herself as? She says, I am Ruth, your servant. Now, there are a couple of different words that she could have used there for servant. She could have used the word, I am this foreign girl that you have no reason to think of as anything other than a slave. Right? That is a cultural term that probably would have typically been used to describe Ruth. I am that foreign girl. But she instead uses the Hebrew word for, I am your woman of marital age like I am I am I am somebody who is 
available. That's the word that she used. I am somebody who is able to be married to you. Hint, hint. Like punching him in the arm. Hey, you get what I'm saying here? I am Ruth, your servant. And then she, she makes a call back to chapter 2, right? Because when, when Boaz first met her, he said, God has covered you with his wings. He is protecting you. He is going to care for you. That was the blessing that he made. So she kind of makes a call back. She says, you remember that time that you said God's going to spread his wings over me? Your redeemer, why don't you be the one that does that? Here I am, able to be married. Why don't, why, why don't you consider this? Why don't you let this be the full step of redemption that you take? The full act of making us whole. The, whole, the full act of fulfilling what has been broken and made empty. So what's he going to say? Verse 10. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness even greater than the first, that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than me. Let's go ahead and keep going. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another and said, Let it, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring me the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went to the city. We'll stop right there. So Boaz's first reaction is that he is impressed, first of all, that she didn't just go after some younger guy, which, which kind of gives us some context of their situation. He's, pro- I mean, he's obviously a wealthy man, so he's had time to build up his wealth over a long period of time. So he's probably significantly older than Ruth, and he's saying... You obviously didn't just go out looking for a husband just for the sake of having a husband because you could. He's impressed at her, initi- her, her desire to not only find a husband for her own safety, but, but he's impressed that she's out looking for someone to redeem the family of her father-in-law, her deceased father-in-law. He's saying, I am amazed that you are, even in this act, not solely concerned for yourself. You are in this for your family. You are in this for your mother-in-law. And and it's almost as though he's moved by that. He says, this kindness that you've shown to me, that word kindness is the same word, hesed, that we've been using all throughout this book. This, This selfless act of kindness that you are offering to me, showing to me by asking me to redeem you and your family, is a greater act than I've seen even you offer up to this point. Like, like he says, this, this is the highest honor that you could show me. That you would ask me to do this because, because you are so beyond just seeking your own good, but seeking the welfare of your entire family and the redemption of that family. He also doesn't read this wrong, right? We could, we could note that. So we're going to highlight his character. He also doesn't see this as her coming up and saying, hey, you want to sleep with me? Right? Because, I mean, he's a guy. Guys are dumb sometimes. Guys might misread situations sometimes, Right? He could have completely misread this as just, like we said, like her coming on to him. And he could have said, oh, you're here for that. 
And he could have completely blown all of this character and honor that he's built up to this point. But he doesn't. He says, oh, this is a good thing that you're going to do. He even takes the initiative the next morning to say, you know what? Just go back home quietly. Let's not make a big deal out of this. I don't want somebody to see you and, and misinterpret why you were here. I don't want your reputation to be tarnished because somebody misunderstands the interaction that we've had here. Right? He's, he's concerned not just for his own reputation, but for hers, his, hers as well. So he's like, go back quietly. Don't, don't make a big deal of this because, because we'll take care of this. We'll work this out. But, but I'm concerned that people don't think less of you because they don't understand why you were here. And so then we'll talk about this gift that he gave her in just a second. We'll go ahead and read the end of the chapter because we get a little bit more specificity about it. So, verse 16. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Okay, so we don't know how much barley that was, six measures. We don't, we don't really have a good frame of reference. But, but I think there are two things that we can learn here. The first one is very practical. One, if you're going to win the girl, make sure you win her mother. <laughs> right? Rule number one, like, like have a good relationship with your will-be, soon-to-be mother-in-law. Right? Go ahead. If you are not married yet, be thinking about that. Like, do you have a good relationship with the one who's going to be your mother-in-law? That's a, that's a good place to be as you, as you, as you go into that. And he's already, he's, like, he's already taken steps. I'm going to make sure that, that, I, that she knows that I am not just focused on Ruth, but I'm, I'm concerned for caring for her too. So, so, so win the mother-in-law. But also, he's already, he's already explaining that, that he's going to redeem their family. And part of that is making them whole. And we've talked about how part of that has been feeding them. And he's already done that, but he's, he's, making, he's taking one more step. One more, one more show that he is concerned about actively making sure that they're fed. And so he, he makes this gesture as a way of saying, see, I'm already going to begin fulfilling this role. Even though it's not worked out yet, I'm going to go ahead and start serving you even now. Again, just reminding us of how high Boaz's character is. How, 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 because he keeps describing him as a worthy man. How, how honorable this man is. And, and his, his genuine desire to seek the welfare of Ruth and Naomi, and then, as a result, their entire family. Right, right. He really does take this responsibility seriously. So, Naomi gives him a brief word of hope, which is interesting, because she hasn't really had a lot of hopeful words. She's like, all right, now just sit back. He's going to take care of this. He's going to do this, right? We haven't heard a lot of positive chatter from Naomi in this book. It's mostly been negative and complaining and bitter. And now she says, don't worry, he's going to take care of it. All right, so we're going to go ahead and move into chapter 4. And I just got a, a quick preview. I'm about to read one of the greatest verses in the Old Testament. Uh, it's Ruth chapter 4, verse 2. Um, it's really significant to me. Daniel and Carla might find it significant as well. Ruth chapter 4, verse 2. You know it. So when I was in youth, a really long time ago, man, like, whoa, okay. So I was probably, what, 13? So like 
15 years ago? Wow, okay. I, I feel old. So we were having one of these days where we're sitting around, we don't have anything to do. We're like, let's memorize some scripture, right? So we're like, all right, let's see. What are we going to memorize today? We're going to memorize Ruth chapter 4, verse 2. We memorized Ruth chapter 4, verse 2, then and there, and it has stuck with me ever since. Now, I memorized it in the NIV, so it's going to feel really weird to me reading it in the ESV. But when we get there, just, just let the verse sink over you a little bit, because it, really it really is vital to the rest of the story. If we didn't have Ruth chapter 4, verse 2, I don't even know that I would be preaching this, this book right now. So here we go. I built it up far too much. I apologize. All right, so chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. Here we go. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. (laughs) Amen. Sorry. Verse 3. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in the former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malin. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malin, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathath and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Okay, there's a lot there. The first thing that I want us to notice is that this other kinsman redeemer, this other guy, doesn't get a name. When he calls him my friend, in what is that verse, right there in verse 1, turn aside friend, sit down here. The translation for friend there is literally so-and-so. Like, the author intentionally made a point to say, I'm not writing this guy's name in here. His name is intent. It's not like the author didn't know his name. The author intentionally left this guy nameless. Which is important 
And it's going to become even more important as we finish up this chapter. It's, the omission's kind of left there intentionally so that we don't think of this guy too positively, right? Because this guy does not desire to redeem Elimelech's family. This guy just desired, oh, I can have some free land? That's awesome. Right, right. That's, that's the nature of this guy. So we're not supposed to think of him positively. So his name is left out so that we have no real way of connecting with him. He's just so-and-so. He's just that guy. It's also going to kind of emphasize the character of Boaz even more because he's kind of the, the anti-Boaz, right? He doesn't want to redeem Ruth. Boaz does want to redeem Ruth, right? Kind of like Ruth's sister Orpah in, in chapter 1 was like, I do want to go home. I'm not really interested in serving Naomi for the rest of my life. I'm going to go. Really served to kind of highlight Ruth's character and kind of propel her Forward and help us to realize the nature of her character and her sacrificial desire to care for Naomi. This guy's desire not to serve Ruth's family and Naomi's family is, is only serving to more highlight the character of Boaz and the level of sacrifice that he's willing to take to serve them. And then it uses that phrase again um, in verse 1 there. And behold, the Redeemer came by. That kind of calls back to what we talked about last week in chapter 2 when it said, it just so happened that Ruth found herself in Boaz's field. That, that, that idea, it's playing it as a coincidence. Like, he walked to the gate, and all of a sudden, the guy he was looking for was there. Yeah, yeah it's probably true that everybody in town had to walk through this gate, but, but the way the language is written there is trying to help us realize, what are the odds that Boaz is looking for this one specific guy? He walks to the gate, and right then, like, like, just so happens. Again, what are the odds? It's playing it off as coincidence so that we again realize that God is actively working behind the scenes to make this play out. Right? It just so happens that right as Boaz gets there, the guy he's looking for shows up. And Boaz doesn't wait. Right? As soon as the guy gets there, he says, hey, come here, come here. We've got to deal with something, but I need to get some witnesses around here. Again, Highlighting Boaz's character. He wants to do this honorably. He wants to do this right. He doesn't want there to be left any doubt that he dealt with this properly. He doesn't want there to be anyone who could suspect, oh, he just kind of snuck in and stole that piece of land from Elimelech. Right. He wants there to be witnesses. He wants this to be acted out in the most noble and honorable way that he could. So he grabs the guy and says, come on, let's go. And it doesn't really seem to imply that he sat around waiting for enough of the elders to show up. Right. He sat around... He didn't sit around. He got up and he said, let's go find some people. So he actively went out, sought some of the elders. He said, let's go get some of these guys. All right, guys, come here, come here, come here. <coughs> sit down. All right. I want you guys to be witnesses to what's going to happen. And he offers the man his right to Elimelech's property first. Kind of seems like a tease. That's awesome. He's like... But again, it's, it's kind of serving to highlight the guy's character. I think it's written so that we, we think less of this guy. Oh, when it was just a piece of land, he'd take the free gift. But when it comes with the responsibility of caring for and perpetuating the family name of somebody, he's not up for that. That becomes inconvenient to him. When there's only a monetary benefit, right? When it's just... This is good for just me. Without any work, I'm being handed something freely. This guy's ready to go. 
let's not be that guy. Let's not be the one who's like, here's an easy opportunity for me to not have to do any work and gain something. Right? We've already seen that Boaz is really happy after a hard day's work. The work is worth it to him. This guy wants to do nothing and just be given something for free just to benefit himself. Once he realizes that there is responsibility to be had and, and he's supposed to, again, perpetuate the name of Elimelech, he's supposed to kind of carry on his family lineage, he gets worried about his own inheritance. He says, I can't do that because I've got my own stuff. I've got my own things I'm trying to take care of here. I have my own legacy to worry about, which is hilarious because he doesn't get a name. Right? He's worried about his name. He's worried about the legacy that he's going to leave. And what we're going to find out here is that Boaz is the one who has the cooler legacy. Boaz is the one who gets his name written down in the important lists in the Bible. And we get to see the effect of his name throughout history. This guy's just so-and-so. And what's interesting is we know that this guy knew that Ruth and Naomi were in town. Because in chapter 1, when they got back, it said the whole town was talking about it, right? Everybody knew they were back. The town was kind of stirred up over the fact that they had returned. So this guy knew. It's as though he was just kind of quietly sitting to the side, hoping that eventually they would both die off. Because as was his right, he would have just kind of received all of the rest of the inheritance without any of the work. He could just kind of sit back and do nothing. And if he could just be quiet long enough, eventually he'd get all of that. Eventually, it'd just be handed to him. So, so he has kind of intentionally tried to kind of ignore the system, hoping that he would get something. So, eventually, essentially, this guy's a bum. Is bum okay? Can I call him a bum? Right? So, I, I have another one for him here in just a sec. So, he's a bum. And, and, and so, he doesn't want that. I mean, and Boaz presents it all to him. And there's kind of this moment of tension where the author looks at, like, is he going to say... I still really want the land. I'll do a hundred, you know, it's like, and then they're not going to end up together. Oh no, what's going to happen? It's kind of that, that tense moment in the romantic comedy that I'm trying not to make this book. But, but it's like that tense moment where like, what's going to happen here? Are we going to get the happy ending? Or are they not going to be together? And then he says, you know what? I can't handle that responsibility. You take that. So in the end, he's a turd who lames out. I, I double-checked with my wife if turd was acceptable. And she didn't say no immediately, so I went with it. But she is shaking her head. She is shaking her head. She is shaking her head because she's embarrassed that I said it. So he refuses to carry on Elimelech's name, and as a result, he gets no name. Boaz is going to take that responsibility. And, and then the elders bless Boaz, right? They say, you're a man of good character who's wanting to do this. May you be blessed with a great inheritance, a great lineage. And it kind of goes back through some of the names in Israel's history when it says, who, um, talking about the house of Perez who, bore t- who, who Tamar bore Judah. It's like, we hope that like our fathers before us, from this moment forward, there is a great explosion of, of lineage. That this, this is an important moment in our history. And we're going to find out it really, really was. So let's go ahead and read verses 13 through 16. All right, here we go. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception. That's science, kids. And she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, 
who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap, and she became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed, and he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So immediately we get contrast in the life of Ruth. She was married to Naomi's son for 10 years. And in chapter 1, it really emphasizes the fact she was married for 10 years and she was unable to have a child. No legacy, no lineage, no carrying on the name of his father. She's married to Boaz. Boaz redeems her. That night she's pregnant. Right? And not just pregnant, she's pregnant with a son. Immediately, we get the contrast from there was nothing, there was no hope, there was emptiness, there was brokenness to you are given a son. You are given somebody who's going to be able to carry your name on forward. Perfectly redeemed, made whole completely in this one act by Boaz. He says, I will take this responsibility. And as a result, God, it says, blesses them and gives them a son. And it, compa- and, it shows, and it shows the mindset of Naomi, how that has changed. She has a grandchild. And what does it say? He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. He's saying, you're going to be a grandmother and you have, and you have a grandson. And having, having a grandkid makes you happy. You have somebody who's young and playful and is going to make you laugh and make you smile and say really silly things. That you're going to remember and you're going to tweet. Guess what my grandkid just said. Right? This is, this, he's saying, this kid's going to make you happy. You're no longer going to be bitter at God. You're not going to think that God's out to get you. You're going to see, you're going to look and see, look at what joy God has now given me. God has made me whole. God has made me happy. God has made me satisfied. He has given me this grandchild. And it says he'll be a restorer of life. Right? Because in her mind, everything around her was dead. She lost her husband. She lost her sons. There wasn't any food. There wasn't any hope. And now she's given life. She's given, she's given a picture of what's going to happen. Her name, her family's name is going to continue. God is not done with her. God has not cursed her. God is not out to get her. God had a very specific plan for the way he was working out her life. And immediately, all of this is kind of culminating in this in this euphoric feeling that she gets when she realizes, look at what God has done for me. So where we began with death and emptiness, we have life and wholeness, fullness. Let's go ahead and read the last couple of verses here. Verse 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashan. Nashan fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. This is like the perfect response to Ruth chapter 1, like the first few verses, where it described Israel as being filled with a famine during the time of the judges. During a time when there was no leadership, there was, there was no order, there was no food, we're now shown people who have food are full and satisfied 
and, and, were, and were led all the way down to David, who was the, the, the greatest king prior to Jesus that Israel would know. That it's the hope of, of leadership, hope of order. So where there was nothing broken, this chaos, we're seeing order and completion. But, it, but this isn't just like a story just for Boaz and Ruth and Naomi, right? Right. This, this is a bigger, this gives us a bigger picture. This gives us context. This isn't just a good story about generosity. I'm not just going to stop and say, be sacrificially kind to one another because that wouldn't do you any good. If, you're ju- if, if I just tell you, you know, be nice, be kind, worry about your character, worry about your reputation, I've missed the, you, I've missed the key opportunity that we have here. The whole point is, this genealogy makes this whole book make sense because it's not saying this was just an isolated story. It provides us historical context. These people led directly to King David. These people, these, these two names, Boaz and Ruth, make it into the genealogy of Jesus. Through the brokenness, through the emptiness, through the bitterness that Naomi faced, through all the death and trouble that they, that they had to fight through, through all of the work that Ruth had to had to endure all the all the struggle that she had to make to try to feed her mother-in-law all of this time through this one act of kindness this great act of hesed that Boaz has shown to redeem Ruth and her family to make them whole again we are given Jesus who ultimately is the perfect Boaz he's the one who who in our brokenness in our emptiness came here So that he could make us whole. He gave himself sacrificially. He gave something to us that we could not attain for ourselves. He lived perfectly so that we could be made whole, made complete, and brought into the family of God. As impressive as Boaz is, as, as worthy a man as he is, as high a character as Boaz has, he pales in comparison to Jesus. He is a, just a precursor to the one who perfectly solves our emptiness, who perfectly puts the pieces of our brokenness back together. And if we don't leave here seeing that this was an act of God worked out in their life, he worked from point A to point B to point C all the way to the point where he made their family whole and answered every broken problem that they had from the beginning. We have to see that, and then we take that picture and we look at it. How does that look? In the big picture. Because it's the exact same thing. We are broken. We are empty. And Jesus is coming. Jesus has come. And he makes us whole. He makes us complete. He makes our lives make sense. He makes the pain that we had to go through sensible, understandable. He helps us to understand why these things took place. But because, because he is so actively working out a plan. Jesus is the one who takes the initiative. Just like Boaz. He didn't sit around and wait like, like Lamewad no name, right? He didn't just sit back and say, I'm going to wait and hopefully I'll get something out of this. No, he took initiative. He got up. He went and found the guy. He found the elder said, let's get this taken care of because somebody needs to care for these women. Somebody needs to be concerned for this family. And that's what Jesus did. He didn't just sit back and wait for this whole sin thing to kind of die off. He said, we're going to do something about this. I'm going I'm going to initiate in a relationship with you. And that's what he's doing. That's what he's done with many of us. That's what I hope he is doing with the rest of us. And my prayer is that coming out of this, that, 
that whatever emptiness or brokenness you may feel or, or know in your life that you would say, oh, Jesus is the one who makes that all make sense. Jesus is the one who makes me whole. Jesus is the one who fixes what is broken. And my prayer is that we would see Jesus and his grace and his initiative as so overwhelming that we couldn't help but just rejoice in who he is and what he has done for us. So let's pray so we can do that. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your son. Thank you for feelings of hopelessness and brokenness that remind us that we are not able to take care of ourselves, but that we, we must rely totally and completely on you. And thank you for being reliable. God, I pray that we wouldn't just take this book and say, that's a really nice love story, look at how that worked out, but that we would see the real application of it, that, that, that you came here and you fought for us. You took our place of judgment so that we could know you, so that, so that we could be made whole in you. And God, I pray for those of us that are in Christ that we would just know that all the more and be excited about that all the more and be overwhelmed by that. And for those of us who aren't in Christ, I pray that you would use this to say, look, look at your life, see what is missing. And then make yourself real. Open eyes to say, oh, Jesus, you are the solution. You are the only hope that I have. God, I pray that you would be saving people right now. And that, and that it wouldn't be like a, this fake, oh, I heard this thing and I said, yeah, I'll do that. But no, that you would give new hearts that desire you, that desire to know you, that, that, that realize that their brokenness is only solved by you. God, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your selfless kindness that you have shown to us. Through your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.